friend, thanks for coming today. Good to see everybody. Like Kara said, especially if it's your first time here this morning, we're glad to see you on this first day of legitimate fall weather. We are in a seven-week series that we started last week called Stuck. And the theme that we're looking at for seven weeks in a row here is spiritual growth. How do you grow spiritually? In other areas of your life, it's pretty straightforward. We talked about last week. If you want to improve personally in other areas of your life, there's a, the formula you can follow is a set of exercises or disciplines. You just have to stick to it. So if you want to improve yourself physically, you just go to the gym. You stick to your exercise regimen. If you want to improve yourself Intellectually, you stick to a new reading regimen. You start reading different books, and you're more disciplined about it. And we assume that it would be the exact same way spiritually. We assume, okay, if I want to grow spiritually, I just got to get a new exercise routine spiritually, read my Bible more or pray more, that kind of thing. But the Bible says spiritual growth is nothing like that. Spiritual growth is something that happens when someone is connected to God. It happens naturally, miraculously. You almost don't know how it happens. Our daughter, Reese, is 15 months old this week. She had her 15-month birthday, big deal. Had a huge party. Um, Not really. And if I look at pictures of her on the day of her birth, this is just 15 months ago. This is, like, not a long time ago. If I look at pictures of her, I barely recognize what I see. I I mean, it doesn't look anything like her. 15 months ago. Then she weighed, like, 7 pounds. Now she weighs a lot more than that, especially going up three flights of stairs. Um, Her thighs alone weigh seven pounds now. Then she was not strong enough to roll over. Now she's strong enough to topple things over, to tear stuff apart. Then all she wanted was to eat and sleep. Now she wants everything. She wants everything. I don't have any idea how a person that small could have desires that intense. Now, what happened? What happened in 15 months? She grew. She transformed. She changed before our eyes. How did it happen? I have no idea. I have no idea how it happened. It's a total mystery. It just happened. But I can tell you one thing. It wasn't her, and it wasn't me. We didn't wake up each day and say, okay, Reese, what's your growth plan for today? We didn't try. She certainly didn't try it. In fact, she couldn't have stopped it if she wanted to. She couldn't have stopped it if she wanted to. She just grew. She just transformed. She just became a different person. And the Bible says that's what spiritual growth is like. That's what spiritual transformation is like. It's like that. It just happens, and you don't even know how, because God does it. So you say, well, why isn't it happening for me? We talked about this last week. To take another example, we have our kitchen opens up to a fire escape. And so this summer we decided we'd put a little herb garden out there. So I planted three pots of basil, among other things. And same thing as Reese, you know, they just grew. I watered them sometimes, didn't even have to do that when it rained, and they just grew. Uh, Until a couple weeks ago, two of them are still going fine, and one of them has stopped growing. First it just stopped growing, and then it started kind of turning yellow and dying. What's happening? I don't know. I don't know anything about basil. So that poor little basil plant is going to die an untimely death. But what I do know is that the only thing I could do at this point to help it would be to stop whatever disease it has. It's sick. 
it, it has some sort of basal disease. It's sick. And nothing I do in terms of, like, feeding it more or putting it in different sunlight or watering it more is going to change. Like, more water, more sunlight. No, it doesn't matter. It's sick. It's not going to grow as long as it's sick. And that's what happens in our lives. We get sick, we get stuck, and it prevents us from growing spiritually and becoming the people that God wants us to be. What we said last week is that we all get sick in the same way. We're all stuck with the exact same thing. If I really wanted to, I guess I could you know, go to the library, get online or something, and pull up a gardening book and look up basal diseases, and I'd be like, okay, here are your 12 diseases. And I'd still have no idea which one it was. You know? I, don't, I don't know. But what I do know is that if you open the Bible, you look up people diseases, soul diseases, there's only one entry. And the name of the soul disease that we all have is called sin. Now, we said last week, it's an old, churchy, stodgy word. If there was any synonym I could use, I would choose another word because that word comes with so much baggage. It sounds so weird. But there are no appropriate synonyms because sin is such a multifaceted, complex concept. Like we talked about last week, we think of sin as something we do, just some action. But really what the Bible says is that sin is actually a part of who we are. It's a force, it's a power that operates within us, that operates upon us. It's a sickness. It's a disease. Now what is it? What's this disease? What's this sickness of sin? What the Bible says is the sickness of sin, the disease of sin, is to encourage us to do one thing and one thing only, one very specific thing which is to challenge God's authority. What sin wants us to do is to challenge God's authority in our lives and the world. And you say, well, okay, I was was with you. You know, I was willing to go with you. Especially if you weren't here last week, you might be thinking, "I, I could go with you. I could believe that I had this disease until you told me what it was. Challenge God's authority. I don't care about challenging God's authority. I don't want to challenge God's authority. I don't have anything against God. You know, I don't have this major ego complex. That's not me. I was willing to say I was sinful, fine, but not that. That's not it. I don't have that in my life. That's just just not me. So what we did last week is we said, okay, realizing it's hard to see that in ourselves, let's look at kind of the three most common forms that sin often takes in our life. If it's always the same underneath how does it kind of spin itself? Because it wants to be crafty, right? It doesn't want to just kind of put this bald face challenge out there. So how does sin spin itself in our lives? And we said three things. If the underlying question is always the same, the underlying question is, now why should God be in charge? Why should God be the one calling the shots? Why should he be the one that gets to have the say-so? If that's the underlying question, the three different forms that question takes are, first, why should God set limits on what you enjoy? Why should he, you know, he's giving you these good things in your life, food and drink and sex and money and possessions, places perimeters, places places boundaries on them. And the first thing sin says is, why why these boundaries? These are arbitrary boundaries. Push the limits. Why? That's the first way it gets us to challenge God. The second thing sin says is, now why should God be in charge of how things turn out in your life? Why should he be the one that says where you end up, how things turn out, what people think of you, whether you're successful or not, that kind of thing. Why should that be up to God? He's not going to look out for you. In fact, maybe he's even competitive with you. Why don't you look out for yourself? Why don't you decide for yourself how things are going to turn out? And sin encourages us to control the people in our lives, to try to control our circumstances, to try to control how other people perceive us. And the third one is sin latches on to hurt, things that have happened to us in the past, bad things, rejection, pain, and says, 
wow, you know what? God didn't really protect you before, did he? God didn't really give you the love that you needed before, did he? So what you should do is kind of start looking out for yourself in that department. Run your own relationships, get your own love, put up your own walls. So you start either on the one hand kind of taking love from wherever you can get it, no matter if it's crummy or not, or on the other, putting this distance between yourself and somebody else so you don't get hurt again. And sin encourages you to do that because you can't trust God to take care of you. You can't trust God. He let you be hurt in the past. So those are kind of the three main, most common ways that sin presents this question to us of why should God be in charge? Why should he be the one that runs your life, that runs the show? And we talked about those last week, hoping that looking at the specifics instead of just the general, we'd be able to recognize it a little bit more in our own lives. What we're going to do this morning is talk about if you're stuck in one of those different circumstances, different if, if you see yourself in one of those different descriptions, how do you get unstuck? And we started talking about this last week. We talked about the first step last week. We're going to talk about the next step this week. And these steps are coming from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. The first paragraph of it is these eight verses called the Beatitudes, really famous passage. We're going to look at those again together this morning. But before we do, let's pray. Father, as we're looking these seven weeks at the way that sin grabs a hold of our lives and keeps us from becoming the people that we want to be and that you want us to be, I pray that you would, like a surgeon, carefully and skillfully, but also mercilessly, um, root out these things in our lives and show them to us, even the things that we can't see ourselves. And that God, through your grace and through your love and through your compassion, you would draw us to you and help us to know you in a way that we haven't before. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you flip over to the back of your program, you've got the words from Matthew chapter 5 printed there. I'm going to read them. Verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Close with these words last week. Let me read them one more time. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. These are the first three of eight different verses of the Beatitudes. That's their name they go by. Beatitudes is just Latin for um, blessing or happiness. Jesus didn't speak Latin, but some guy that put the little heading in your Bible apparently spoke Latin at some point. So these, these sayings about how to be happy. Some of the most familiar sayings of Jesus but also, I think, some of the most misunderstood. I was reminded of this la- last week when Kara brought up that um, in the Monty Python spoof of the life of Christ, there's a scene where Jesus is giving this part of his sermon, and there's these guys in the back listening, and they can't really hear what he's saying, so he gets to the part where he says, blessed are the peacemakers, and they're like, blessed are the cheesemakers? Oh, well, those, those fellows are such hardworking men. I'm, I'm glad they're going to be blessed. I'll spare you my atrocious British accent impersonation, even though I really don't want to. But um, So, like all things Monty Python, it's not just silly. There's, there's an underlying brilliance to it, right? Because, I mean, they don't just pick those words out of a hat. These are so familiar, and yet, whether you can hear what Jesus is saying or not, who really knows what he means? Who really knows what he's talking about? Even if you can hear the actual words, you still might not know anymore what he's actually talking about. 
he says these things and they don't make much sense. Because we, we try to treat them like proverbs, right? Like these individual sayings about different groups of people that are supposed to describe something about the way the world works. These wise sayings. And yeah, they're beautiful and they're old sounding and we give them a certain reverence and respect. But if they're proverbs... I think they're kind of lousy proverbs. They don't really make any sense, and they don't seem very true. A proverb is supposed to say something kind of in a short, pithy way, and you're like, yeah, that's, that's what I've always thought anyway. These aren't like that. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. What does that mean? When? When are they going to be comforted? Why? Who says? Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. That doesn't seem to be the way things happen. Nice guys finish last. There's a proverb. That's a proverb. It describes the way the world actually works. Blessed are meek, for they will inherit the earth. If Jesus hadn't said that, nobody would listen to it. They'd be like, that's stupid. I don't know what that means. So what's going on here? Why, how can we understand the Beatitudes? Well, the first interpretive key to unlocking the Beatitudes is recognizing first that Jesus isn't talking about eight different groups of people. You know, we're just looking at the first three of eight here. But he's not talking about different groups of people. He's talking about different qualities, different components of one type of person, of one group of people. So when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, these are not three different groups. These are three things that one type of person should do. That's the first thing. The second thing is they're not descriptive. They're not talking about the way the world actually works. But rather... They're proclaiming a new reality that Jesus is instituting that you can kind of believe on faith. So Jesus is never saying, here's how the world works. Jesus is saying, I'm setting up something new, and this is the way that the something new is going to work. So the way you know that that's true is he starts with, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the benefit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He ends with that too, as we'll see in a few weeks. The last one, he says, blessed are the peacemakers, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Why does he end with the same one? Do you just run out of things in his list? You know, he's going through these benefits and, well, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven because he doesn't have anything else to say. No, they're brackets. They're brackets. The first and the last, they're brackets that include all the rest. There's only one benefit that he's promising, the kingdom of heaven. And included in that is mercy. Included in that is comfort. Included in that is forgiveness. Included in that is inheriting the earth. So what is this kingdom of heaven that he's promising? So we've got, now we've got, instead of different groups of people and different benefits, we've got one group of people with different components, but just one benefit, just one thing he's promising. And these first ones are talking about how do you enter into this kingdom of heaven? What is this kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God? Kingdom of God is the phrase he uses more often. What is the kingdom of God? He talks about it incessantly. It's like all he can talk about. All of his stories are, the kingdom of God is like this, the kingdom of God is like that. He's always talking about how you get into the kingdom of God, how you see the kingdom of God. You may have heard this phrase, born again, before. People talking about becoming a Christian and becoming born again. It comes from this conversation between Jesus and this religious Jewish person named Nicodemus. And what Jesus says to him is, to see the kingdom of God, you've got to be born again. To enter the kingdom of God, you've got to be born again. Born again isn't an end in itself. It's just talking about getting to this kingdom, getting to this place, becoming a part of something. What is it? Well, you could pick up plenty of thousand-some-odd-page-long books about the kingdom of God, you know, unpacking what Jesus says. But So it's not something you could ever totally wrap your mind around this side of heaven, this side of the kingdom of God, but a simple, short 
easy to understand definition that I think works pretty well, for me at least, is the kingdom of God is wherever God reigns. Wherever God has total control, wherever his rule is unchallenged. So Jesus says, he prays in the Lord's Prayer, your will be done on earth, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What the Bible says is that someday God's kingdom will be on the whole earth. He will reign over the whole earth. His will, his reign, his rule will be unchallenged everywhere. Now, that's obviously not the way things are now. So what Jesus also says is the kingdom of God can be within you. He says God's kingdom can be in you in the sense that God can have total and complete and unchallenged reign in your heart and in your life or in communities. God can have total, complete, unchallenged reign, unchallenged authority in your life or in the lives of a community. Now that talk of total, complete, unchallenged authority should ring a bell because that's what we were talking about with sin. That's what sin is, challenging the authority of God. So now sin becomes even clearer. Now there's even a, a better way of talking about sin than we had before. If the kingdom of God is God's total, complete, unchallenged reign, then what sin is, is this anti-kingdom activity. It's not bad stuff. It's not just doing something wrong. It's anti-kingdom. It's anti-God activity. It's challenging the kingdom. It's, to use a word that's in the news a lot over the past seven or eight years, it's insurgency. Sin is insurgency. It's rebellion. And if a healthy relationship with God is submission to him, submission to this kingdom, then sin is insurgency, it's rebellion, it's mutiny, it's saying, no, I'm going to do it myself. What Jesus is talking about in these first three verses of the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, is what we talked about last week. The first step, the first thing you have to do if you want to come into God's kingdom, if you want to have a relationship with God, if you want God's power in your life, if you want God to transform you, the first thing you have to do is kind of give up. You have to say, I'm done with all of those things that had me trapped, all of those anti-God activities, all of those insurgencies in my heart, and I can't get rid of them on my own, and I want to come to you. That should make you sad. That's the mourning part. It makes you sad that you've been doing this, that you've been living this way with respect to God. It makes you poor in spirit. You have nothing on your own. It makes you meek. It makes you broken. That word meek there is the same word used in Greek for like a, an animal that's been, a wild animal that's been tamed, like when you break a horse. It's that type of brokenness. You have this strength, you have this power, but it's been broken. It's been put under a master. And Jesus is saying, that is the first step to coming to me, to coming to God, is kind of hitting bottom in your life and realizing, man, all these different ways that sin has a grip in my life, I don't think I'm ever, on my own, going to be able to break free of it. The first step to getting unstuck is to realize you're stuck and to admit that you're powerless to get unstuck on your own. And that's what we talked about last week. Now what's step two? What do you have to do after that? The next step is not only recognizing kind of the state you're in, but then taking action based on it. So first step is recognizing where you're at, hitting bottom. Okay, I can't do this on my own. I can't break free on my own. Step two is letting go, the title of this morning's message. Step two says, recognizing that, seeing where I am in my life, I'm going to turn the keys over to God. Step two is saying, I'm not qualified to run my own life, but I know somebody who is. So I'm going to resign as CEO. I'm going to resign as GM. I'm going to stop being my own boss. 
and I'm going to deliberately, intentionally, consciously place myself under somebody else. I'm going to place myself in a subordinate position. That's step two, letting go. Total and complete surrender to Christ to let him run your life instead of you. And they're different, right? It's one thing to realize, okay, I'm not doing a good job running my own life. That's one thing. That's hard enough in itself. It's still another thing to hand over the keys. It's still an additional step to then say to God, all right, God, I can't do it, but I know you can, so I want you to run my life for me. Jesus says, look on the back of your outline, again, on the back of your program. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What's he talking about there? Come to me, all you who are overburdened, and take my yoke on you because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What does that mean? Because that's the offer. When I say, you know, let go, let God run your life, I'm not just making kind of an empty suggestion. God, all throughout Scripture, encourages us to do this. This is a really clear example of it here. Jesus saying, turn it over to me. Turn it over to me. God, all throughout Scripture, asks us to do this. What, what is he offering? What's the actual offer that's being made? Well, Jesus is using an image from farming, an agrarian image, as he often does. And he's talking about oxen. Oxen work in teams. They've got this yoke, this wooden beam that links them together. And Jesus is saying, hey, instead of kind of running on, you know, you've got your own plow over here. Why don't you instead come over here, be yoked together with me, and we'll be a team. And instead of having this heavy burden that you have of kind of driving your own plow by yourself, we'll be a team over here and you can be on my yoke because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Well, that sounds great. Why wouldn't anybody want to do that? It sounds perfect, right? Well, in a team of oxen, there's one that's kind of the lead oxen. And if you're teamed up with Jesus, guess who's going to be the lead oxen? You don't get to choose where you go anymore. So your, your burden gets a lot lighter, but you don't get to choose where you go anymore. And that presents a couple of really big problems. So just in the 10 minutes we have left, I want to spend the rest of our time, our remaining time this morning, talking about the two biggest problems with surrendering your life totally to Christ, with taking on his yoke. Because for a lot of people, even after they've hit bottom, even after they've realized they're bad CEOs of their own life, they still can't totally surrender. Why is that? For a lot of Christians, even, they've never totally surrendered their life to Christ. They've always hedged a little bit. It's been like, well, God, come into my life. God, make my life better. But I'm not going to give you 100%. Why? What are the big problems in the way? standing in the way of taking Jesus' yoke on you, this, this easier, lighter burden. Why is it so hard? Two big things that I want to talk about. The first is our fear, and the second is our pride. So first, our, our fear. There's this great story, little story, about a guy who falls off this 1,000-foot cliff, and halfway down, he, he grabs the only branch on the cliff. So he's hanging there, 500 feet up, 500 feet down and he's hanging on for dear life and he shouts up to the top of the cliff at the top of his lungs somebody help me somebody help and lo and behold he hears the very voice of God say I am the Lord let go trust me I'll catch you so he looks down thinks for a minute and then yells is there anybody else up there 
because it's scary, right? It's scary to let go. It's scary to let go when there's 500 feet to drop, even if it's God, even if it's God telling you that. So a lot of us would rather just hang there, even if you've come to that place of hitting bottom and saying, man, I'm kind of in a bad situation. You'd rather just hang there because at least it's a known entity. At least you know what's going to happen. And you start to say, you know what? This branch really isn't that bad. I mean, it's really not that bad here. I'm actually doing okay. In fact, I pretty much have it covered. I've got it kind of under control. And then more and more time goes by, and pretty soon you're never going to let go. You're going to die there on that branch. It's scary. It's scary to completely let go and completely surrender to Christ. What are we afraid of? What are we so afraid is going to happen? Well, I think two things. I think one, we're afraid of what he's going to make us do. And then two, we're afraid of what he's not going to let us do. So on the, what he's, you know, I think a lot of people don't want to completely 100% surrender because it's like, you know, if I, I know somebody that did that and they're a missionary now, you know, like that's not smart. Like you just watch what happens. Don't do that. Everybody knows don't 100% surrender. It's a bad idea. You know, you're going to have to go to the Middle East or something. Uh, so that's the first thing is what is he going to make you do? But the second thing is not only what is he going to make you do, but what is he going to not let you do anymore? We were talking about the ways we're trapped in our sin the ways that sin gets a grip on us and doesn't let us go. Because sin lies. The lie of sin is, hey, if you push the limits and go out into this territory beyond God's reign, outside of God's kingdom, you'll be your own boss. But behind that banner of independence is the reality of slavery. Once you get outside God's kingdom, sin's your boss. People, human beings aren't made to be their own boss. It's the old Bob Dylan song. It might be the devil. It might be the Lord. You're going to have to serve somebody. So sin's got this grip on your life. You, don't, you want to get out of that. You know, that's no good. You're, you're done with that. But if you completely surrendered to God, if you 100% gave your life to God, he's not going to even let you dabble in that stuff anymore. And you don't want it to control you. You don't want to be addicted. You don't want to be completely controlled by sin. But neither do you want to be on a diet for the rest of your life from everything fun, you know. <laughs> Anything that's at all worth doing, God says, nope, that's off limits. You're 100% surrendered to me. Now, as your pastor, um, if you're expecting me to say, don't worry, just surrender. God's not going to make you go to the Middle East, and he's not going to put you on a diet for the rest of your life. Uh, You're looking for the wrong thing, because I can't tell you that. I can't tell you. I don't know what God's going to ask you to do. I don't know what God's going to ask you to give up. So I can't say, don't be afraid. It's not going to be scary. It'll be easy. I can't say that. But what I can say is, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Because while I don't know that it will always be safe, I know that God is good, and I know that he will give you the strength. And I know, I know that whatever that burden is that he's going to place on your shoulders, it's easier and lighter than what you're carrying right now. I know that for certain. So it seems so scary but it's just because you don't know what it is. What Jesus' promise is, no matter what it is, and you don't know what it's going to be if you completely 100% surrender. You don't know where he's going to take you. No matter what it is, it's going to be easier than what you're carrying right now. It's going to be lighter than what you're carrying right now. doesn't mean it's not scary. God is not safe. He is not a safe God to follow. If you're looking for a 100% safe God, you've got to find another religion. And there's plenty of good ones that I can recommend to you. But if you, if you want to follow this God, you cannot be guaranteed of safety. But you can be guaranteed that he is good. You can be good, 
guaranteed that he will take care of you. So that's the first big obstacle to 100% surrender is our fear, our fear of where God's going to take us. We don't want to go there. The second one, the second big obstacle to 100% surrender, and this is one that's particularly close to my heart um, because it's something that I struggle with, is pride. The second big obstacle to 100% surrender to God is pride. Now, we've talked about sins, different manifestations, different forms, like in these addicting, comforting habits, or in these controlling tendencies, or in these ways that you deal with hurt in your past, these different forms of sin. And maybe for some of you, and I think that I'd maybe put myself in this category, maybe for some of you, none of those really hit home. You're like, yeah, you know, I don't really struggle with that one so much, or that one's not really an issue for me anymore. I used to have a problem with that one, but, you know, not as much anymore, so it's, it's pretty good now. So the way I'd describe it is, those different forms of sin, to, to use an image from the bar, it, they're like cocktails. You know, they're different cocktails that sin makes up. Now, some of you just like the straight stuff. Some of you don't want it in any of these different manifestations. You don't have a problem with a habit. You don't have a problem with this particular controlling tendency. You don't have a problem with a past hurt. Some of you, your problem is sin in its core, sin in its essence, sin in its purest, which is what we were talking about earlier, just wanting to do your own thing. I want to call the shots. You don't have to put any gloss on it. You don't have to put any spin on it. I want to call the shots in my life. So you don't like any of the cocktails. You just want the, the straight vodka. You know, I'm not hooked on any of those cocktails. Yeah, because you've got the vodka. You, know? you don't need the cocktails. Sin is doing your own thing. Sin is doing your own thing. And that's its purest form. And those of you who are parents know that that's its purest form. Because your kid may do all these bad things, you know, eat a piece of candy they're not supposed to eat, or touch something they're not supposed to touch, or break all these rules, whatever. That's, you know, cocktail sin, diluted sin. But the purest sin is when you say, okay, I want you to do this, and they look you right in the face and say, no. That is sin. I mean, that is the real stuff. And some of you, that's what you're addicted to, that. And what the Bible says is there's only one place that can go, And it always ends in death. It always, 100% of the time, ends in death. Because God, I don't know why, leaves that that option open to us. He says, if you want to say no to me, if you want to be boss of your own life, you can. But it always ends in death. If you're crossing the West Side Highway with your kid and you're you're holding onto your child's hand, if if a child runs out into the highway and says, no, I don't need your help, I don't want to hold your hand, I'm going to do it on my own. You're going to get hit by a car. They're going to get killed. What, why did they get killed? What happened? They did not want to be reliant. They didn't want to rely on anybody else besides themselves. And self-sufficiency, and like I said, I speak with this with particular passion because it's something I understand from my own experience. Self-sufficiency is the purest form of sin, and it's the type most likely to end in death and badly. Uh, I was kind of into... Billy Joel for a short period in high school and there's a Billy Joel song my life um so and it's like I don't remember the exact hook some of you probably could sing it but um you know don't tell me what to do anymore this is my life go ahead live live your own life leave me alone and that it's been I looked it up this week like a year in the top 40 in 1978 
So it was less than 10 years before. This is not like a new novel message, okay? Less than 10 years before that, 1969, another song spent ten, uh, a whole year in the top 40. Frank Sinatra's swan song, My Way. I did it my way. Goes through all these things that happened in his life, all these mistakes he's made. And he, said, he says at the end, but you know what I didn't do? I never said the words of a guy who bows his knees to the ground. I never did that. I did it my way. I did it my way. And there are guys in, uh, I was going to, I don't want to racially stereotype, but I was going to say there are guys in Brooklyn or New Jersey, you know, that still go to their deathbed saying like, you know, it's just like Frankie said. It's just like Frankie said. I did it my way, you know. And, you, I mean, it's not something unique to Frank Sinatra lovers, you know, that you might not love Frank Sinatra, you may not love that song, so you wouldn't say it like that, just like Frankie said. But you're just, I mean, it's the same thing, you know, maybe it's, it's more sophisticated in Manhattan than it is in Brooklyn or New Jersey. But it's the same thing, I did it my way. It's like, good for you, pal. I mean, good for you, you know? What is that worth? What is that worth? What Jesus says is, what good is it? What does it profit a man for him to gain the whole world, but to lose his soul. Now, if you've been around a while, you know that I am a big fan of self-interest. I'm a big fan of looking out for yourself, making wise investments, because Jesus was. Jesus talks all the time about wise investments. He talks all the time about profit. And here's his ultimate investment advice. Tell me this. Reason with me now. What good is it? How does it profit you? What's your bottom line? If you gain the whole world, but you lose your soul in the process, where are you then? It's not about being good. It's not about being nice. It's not about being spiritual. It's about profit. It's about what is going to get me where I want to go. And Jesus says, this isn't it. This isn't it. And there's only one way. The only way is poor in spirit. The only way is mourning. The only way is meekness, is being broken. That's the only way. And that's tough, right? That's tough if you're used to self-sufficiency, if you're used to being able to take care of things for yourself. Because if you know what you want in life, if you know how to get it, if you know where you need to go, if you can take care of yourself, Jesus kind of says, look, I don't really know what I can do for you. A guy came to him like that one time. Rich Young Ruler was his name. We don't know his, his real name. He's like, Jesus, I want to follow you. I, I want to be part of the crew. And Jesus looks at him, he's just sad. He doesn't have anything to give this guy because this guy's got everything he needs. This guy can always look out for number one effectively and efficiently. And so Jesus says, well, I mean, I can, the only thing I could really say is, you know, I, I don't think I can do anything for you. I, I guess if you, like, sold everything you have and came and followed me, that would work. And the guy's like, well, I don't, you know, I don't think that's going to work. You know, turns around and leaves. It's hard. It's hard for people who are capable. I'm a capable person. A lot of you are too. It's hard for people who are capable. It's easier for people who are poor, who are broken, who have a hard time looking out for themselves. It's easier for them. Why is the game rigged? I don't know. But you know what? You've always known the game was rigged. You just thought it was rigged the other way. You've always, I mean, yeah, you work hard. Yeah, you're smart. Yeah, you, you know, put in more effort than other people. But if you've been successful in life, I know, and for myself, my success, you know, it's rigged. I mean, sure, I work harder than everybody else, but still, it's rigged. I mean, I was given a good 
hand of cards to play. And I'm not saying I didn't play it. I'm not saying I don't deserve some of the credit. But it was still, I, you know, it's always been rigged in my direction. Guess what? You find out when you read the Bible that the world is rigged. It's just rigged the other way. It's rigged the exact opposite way. And people who are poor, people who are disadvantaged, have an unbelievable leg up. What does that mean for successful people? It doesn't mean you're cut out of the game. It just means you have to work harder than you thought. You know, Just the way you used to look at a guy that came from a disadvantaged background and got to get ahead, that's the position that you're in spiritually. You've got to work that much harder to get to where that guy is. Because it's that much harder to realize you're broken. It's that much harder to realize you need God. It's that much harder to realize you can't take care of yourself. But it can happen. It can happen. It's happening slowly in my life. I've seen it happen in other people's lives. And it can happen for you too. You can move from a place of pride and self-sufficiency to a place of believing you can't do it on your own, believing that you need God, and casting yourself utterly upon him, letting go and letting him run your life. You have to believe you're a bad boss of yourself first, which takes time but it can happen. We're going to pray this morning as we close in two different prayers for two different sets of people. If you're there already, if you see it, if you're like, man, I see that sin's got a grip on my life. I see I'm a bad boss of myself. I see that I can't do it myself. If you're there already, Jesus calls you blessed. Jesus calls you happy. Jesus calls you fortunate. I'm tempted to say lucky, you know, but luck has nothing to do with it. If you're there already, just be grateful and just pray this morning, God, I want to let go. Maybe you've never fully surrendered your life to Christ before out of fear. You know, you're a Christian, but you've never said, God, whatever you want, it doesn't matter to me. Then pray that this morning. If you're not there yet, if you still feel like you're a pretty decent boss of your own life, if you still feel like most of the things you want in life you can get for yourself, if you still feel like you're pretty happy with who you are and where you are at in life, if you're not there yet, you're not there yet. What you can pray and, you know, I don't know if this is true for you, but you might be in that place of feeling like you're a great boss of your own life and not feeling any sense of dependency, but you hear it described and you think, you know, that might be good. That might be a good thing if I felt that way. I don't feel that way. I don't feel dependent, but I can see that there would be kind of an advantage if I did feel that way. There's still a prayer for you to pray, which is, God, I want to feel that way. I want to want to. I'm willing to be made willing. You're one step removed. That's one of the best prayers I know. I want to want to. I'm willing to. Be, I'm not willing, but I'm willing to be made willing. Maybe some of you here, you're you know one step further out, which is I'm a good boss in my own life, and I don't even want to be made willing. I don't even want to want to. I just don't think that I'm ever going to not be a good boss in my own life, and I don't think there's any reason to say it any other way. If that's you, then don't pray. No, don't pray. But I will continue to pray for you, for God's work in your life. Let's pray now. First, for those of you that already kind of see the grip that sin has in your life, pray this. God, for whatever reason, you've allowed me to come to an understanding that I'm never going to become the person you made me to be if I'm calling my own shots, and that the grip that sin has in my life in whatever different area is never going to be broken unless I completely surrender to you unless I turn over the keys, unless I let you run my life. God, I want to do that this morning, and I know that that means that you might take me somewhere where I don't want to go, but I know that you've promised that whatever this burden is that I'll have to carry with you, one, that you'll always be with me, and two, that it will be lighter than what I'm carrying right now. For those of you that don't see it yet, that don't see God's 
hand in your life showing you the sin that has a grip in you and showing you the way that you need to be dependent on him. Pray this. God, I, f- I still feel pretty capable. I still feel like I am pretty good at running things and taking care of myself. But when I hear about the type of dependence that someone's supposed to have when they come to you, uh, it sounds somewhat attractive to me, and I can kind of grasp it on an intellectual level. So, God, this morning, even though I don't feel it yet, even though I can't say I want to, I'm, I'm ready to be dependent on you, I'm willing to be made willing. I want to feel that way. I want to be made to feel that way, and I want you to start working in my heart and pushing me to that place. God, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.